All right, folks, let's begin. All right. Um, so, we're, if you go to Vyoma Kippurim. Okay. So, we have the um, focused uh, this morning, we'll focus on two elements of the Yom Kippur service. Uh, the first is, um, before we focus on that, I did want to say something about these srichot that are recited on, uh, on Yom Kippur. So the um, ancient, the traditional uh, practice, when I say traditional, I mean that those who really stick to the authentic traditions without deviating, and there are two groups. There are the Sephardic Jews, um, the genuine Sephardic. I'm not talking about the Nusach Sephardic, which is Ashkenaz, the Ari. I mean, the Sephardic, Edot Mizrach here, and other synagogues similar to this one. So they are saying Srichot in all the services of Yom Kippur. There are five services, and they say Srichot in the five services. Now, I just was talking to Chazen Road, and there is an interesting difference between the practice of the Edot Mizrach on one hand and the Ashkenazic practice on the other. And that is that the, uh, the practice of the Edot Mizrach apparently is that Srichot are recited after the Chazarat Hashatz. After the Chazan repeats the Shemona Esrei, which is in the four prayers of the day. Afterwards, I don't know, know about Ne'ilah, but I, I, that I didn't check. But as far as Shacharit, Min, Musaf, and Mincha, after the Chazarat Hashatz, there's a half Kaddish, and then they say Srichot. Now, as far as the Ashkenazic custom is concerned, the truth is that in 98% of the Ashkenazic shuls in Shacharit and Mincha and Musaf, they don't really say Srichot at all. They chop them out, as we'll see. They don't say them. They, they retain, for whatever reason, a remnant of the Srichot. For example, Shema Koreinu is recited in all the prayers. Shvakoreinu, open up the ark. That is simply a remnant at the end of the Srichot service. So when they chopped out the Srichot, whoever did the chopping, um, the editors of the prayer books or whatever, they didn't chop it out completely. They left in pieces of the Srichot, very strange. But for those places that do say Srichot, for example, the German Jews, they have the, keep all the authentic traditions, and a few others who follow, who are very troubled by the way it's all chopped up, and they say Srichot in the service to maintain the authentic structure. So the Ashkenazim are saying Srichot inside the Chazarat Hashatz. In the private Shvona Esrei, we don't say Srichot at all. It's never said privately. The Srichot are recited only publicly, and there's a very big difference here between the Ashkenazic rite and the Sephardic rite. The Ashkenazic rite is to say the Srichot inside the Shemona Esrei, and the Sephardic rite, those who say it, and all of them say it, they don't Mizrach, is after the Shemona Esrei is repeated. Now, as far as the Ashkenazic rite is concerned, where, in, where inside the Shemona Esrei is it recited? So as we saw last week, at night, there is no repetition of the Shemona Esrei, so it's said after. At night it's said after the Ma'ariv, uh, after the evening prayer, Shemona Esrei, after the Amida. And then, it's interesting, by the way, which is probably related to the first point, that the, um, 
the slichot that are recited at night, okay, they're introduced by the little poem Yahweh Tachlunenu. Um, just find that in. Yes. So the the Ashkenazic practice, let's say at nighttime, is after we are saying the Shemon Esrei, and then we start the Shlichot service, we start with the, the poem Yahweh Tachlu Nenu, I spoke about that last week. We don't say Kaddish before Yahweh. Right after the Shemon Esrei is repeated, we start Yahweh Tachlu Nenu Mayer. The Sephardim are different. They say a half Kaddish. They break it up. Because for the Sephardim, their practice is that the Shlichot service is not part of, it's a separate piece of, it's a separate portion. It's not part of the davening. But the Ashkenazim, they say the Shlichot inside the Shemona Esrei. So even when they say it after the Shemona Esrei, they don't have a Kaddish in between. It's similar, I'll give, let's take the daily prayer service. Forget Yom Kippur for a minute. Just the regular daily prayer service. So in the morning we're saying Shema, and then we are praying the Shemona Esrei, and then the Chasim repeats the Shemona Esrei, and right after the Shemona Esrei, what do we say next? We say Tachnun. Tachnun. The Sephardim actually who say, they say some of them say, in Israel even some Ashkenazim say, you give a Midot and Tachnun. Fine. There's never a Kaddish before Tachnun. Never. Now why is that? The Kaddish is actually after Tachnun. If you have Kaddish, if you read the Torah, right? Half Kaddish after Tachnun. And then you say, Ashrei, read the Torah. But there's no Kaddish between the Shemona Esri and Tachnun every single day. Now why is that? Because we consider the Tachnun to be part of Shemona Esri. <coughs> it's clear. The Tachnun is part of the Shemona Esri. So why do we knock it out half the time? Who's we? Well, I'm sorry, speaking for me and the synagogues that I worship. Well, it's, Rabbi Soloveitchik was vehemently opposed to eliminating Tachnun. It's true that the Hasidim have basically tried to eliminate Tachlun whenever possible. Well, you ask me why they do that? I can give you my uh, speculation as to why they... Okay, they but I'm in the modern Orthodox school. Okay, doesn't so. matter. You ask me why, you, why your synagogues don't... Well, I'll, I'll, listen, it's around Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur time. I don't want, I don't want to see too many bad things. But uh, <laughs> I will say the following. Rabbi Soloveitchik insisted, and it's clear, that the Tachanun, and I'll tell you why some people like try to get rid of it. The Tachanun is, it's called Nefilat Apayim, falling down to the ground. Because in the old days, actually, they used to fall on the floor. The Gemara says that we stopped doing that. The Gemara already says, if you're, unless you're a real tzaddik or something, you shouldn't fall down on the ground. So if we don't fall on the ground, we sort of lean over and look at our hand. But it's called Nefilat Apayim, falling down. The Shemona Esrei, it's called what? Amida. Amida, standing up. So there's the standing up and the falling down. And the point of the tradition is that these two elements of the prayer are, are, are reflecting two different aspects of what it means to pray, to pray before God. By the way, something that's a very interesting thing if somebody wants to study it, and stuff's been written about it, is prayer in general. I'm not talking about Jewish, only Jew, Jewish prayer. Prayer in general. What is the stance of the one who is praying? Even within Judaism, there's interesting issues there. Does one stand up in prayer? Does one bend down in prayer? Does one look up, look down? What do you do with your hands, etc.? So different traditions, different religions actually, practice this differently. As far as our Judaism is concerned, 
our prayer is called Amidah. But the point is related to the Amidah, as part of it, we have Nefilat Apayim. Because the two different stances. Amidah means you're standing before God, you're demanding, you have a certain aspect, you stand up, you're standing face to face or whatever. As if, okay, it's before a king, but it's standing up. And Nefilah has a different sense to it, not just the way you stand, but the words. It's about the fallen, the fallen human being. Tachanun is about the, the uh, severe limitations of, of, of people, uh, the fallen state of, 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 uh, of humanity. Just read the words of Tachanun, right? That's the Ashkenazic right. It's, I'm, I'm, I'm in God's hands. Don't, don't put me in the hands of the human being, said King David. That's always trouble. And he knows very well. Uh, I'd rather be in God. We're, we're all in God's hands. We, there's not, not much we can do. We need God's assistance, right? So that's Tachanun. So we understand why certain people don't like the Tachanun so much, because they like to emphasize the grandeur of the human being and the majesty of the human being and all of that stuff. And they don't like the other piece of it, which is reflecting or emphasizing the lowly state of, of, uh, of, uh, of all humanity. So that, but the Tachanun, Rabbi Salavetri felt, is, and, that, and the halacha reflects this, is, is actually complementary. So the Slichot actually are found, um, the, the Ashkenazim say Slichot actually inside the, inside the Shemona Esrei, even when we say it after the Shemona Esrei, which is Yom Kippur night. Uh, we, don't say, uh, we don't say Kaddish before. And the same thing is true on the minor fast days, the Slichot are said afterwards, I believe there's no there's no uh, there's no kaddish there either. It's said without kaddish, right? In any event, so that's the difference between the practice of the Sephardim and the Ashkenazim. We say it inside the inside the. Now, so where do we say it? For those that say slichot on Yom Kippur on all the services, when when is it said? So it's actually very interesting. It is said. Let's say, for example, in the Iwa. Everybody says Slichot in the ego. Slichot is Hashem, Hashem, Karachum, Vachanum. The repetition of that, the attributes of God's mercy, usually there's a little statement or poem that precedes it. That's what we call Slichot. Say, so in, in, in the ego, every traditional con- congregation says Slichot in the ego. There's not much else you do say in the ego besides Slichot. There's a confession we'll get to later. So the Slichot are recited, and you have the photostats, I believe. I had. Do we give out the photostats? Yeah. Okay. I don't think I have a photostat, but they recited. Do we have an extra copy of the photostat? Just throw one over here if we have. Are there any extras? This one. It's in the back. Maybe I have it. It's, I have it, I have it, I have it, I have it, I have it. Right here, this is the photostat. Right. So the... Let's, do I have it here? Let me see. So it's on page... Where is this here? Let's see. 736. Yeah, 7... 734 and 736. Right? Those are consecutive pages. So if you see the bottom of 734 is Yahweh V'yavo. Bottom of 734 is Yahweh V'yavo. And the continuation is on top of page 736, which starts with Petachu Anushar. Petachu Anushar, right, is the introduction to Srichot of, uh, of an Iwa. Has its own no That's it's the introduction to open up the gates, right? Right? Kelna, right? This is the introduction and it starts 
El Melech Yosheva Kisei Rachamim, which is the paragraph we always say before we say that you give a midot. That's Slichot. So what introduces Slichot in the Igla is Yalav Yavo. For the reason I mentioned last week, because the last line of Yalav Yavo is Kikel Melech Chanun Vrachum Chanun Vrachum, Rachum Vrachanun are the first two attributes of the Yudgim Umidot. So that right, leads right into the Slichot service. So for those that say Slichot in Shacharit and Mincha, it's the same thing. If you open up a, a sitter that has Slichot in it, the old Adler Machser has it and some other Machserim have it. Most don't, but many do. And you'll see straight out, after Yalav Yavo in the Chazarat Hashatz, there is Slichot. We say Slichot. The issue is, so that's mincha and that's for those that say it. I, I truth is, if you're used to saying slichot and you don't say it, you, if it's a, it feels so weird. Something's actually missing because they chopped it out of the davening. What about musaf? So in musaf, we don't say yalav yavo in musaf. The Ashkenazim don't say yalav. I don't know what the Svarim do. The Ashkenazim don't say yalav yavo. So where in musaf do you say if you? Hypothetically, if you would say Srichot, where would you say them in Musaf? So this is actually very interesting. Where we say Srichot, or where Srichot should be said in the Musaf of Yom Kippur. And they are recited, actually should be recited, after the Avoda. And this, I think I made a copy of this. The Avoda goes on. Let's see. 738 and it starts 7, 554 and it goes on to let's see 558 562 564 566 do we have any more of this? let's see no we don't have it it would be right after actually it's right after the we have several pages of the Avoda the Avodah being the reenactment of the service of the high priest on the day of Yom Kippur, the atoning service for Yom Kippur. And after you finish with that, the Kohen Gadol comes out of the Holy of Holies and he's very happy, he survived. And then there's a poem that's recited, Mari Kohen. Many places sing Mari Kohen. Or Animtach Bedore Mao, Mari Kohen. And after that section, which describes the Kohen Gadol coming out, how he looks, it's amazing. And then the prayer book continues. This was when we had a, a Beit HaMikdash. It was so beautiful, how, how amazing to see this. Avo, but, but, but our sins have destroyed it and our continual sinning has prevented it from being rebuilt and, what, and, 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 we, and we, we, we don't have the sacrificial service. And what can we say? We have, we have no words to say. And that, the next words are Slach Avinu, that's a Slichot. The Slichot service on Yom Kippur Musaf is introduced by the reenactment of the Beit HaMikdash, the service inside the temple. And then suddenly, after we reenact it, it's so beautiful, then we say, but, 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 but it's all missing. We don't, we don't have the service. Why don't we have it? Our, our sins have destroyed it. And then we are requesting forgiveness. Now, I wanted to make a simple point about the placement of the Slichot on Yom Kippur. Now, and the truth is that even those that are, even those, which is most people, who don't say Slichot in Musaf, however, 
What's interesting is that there are pieces of the Srichot that are left in there. Apart from Shema Koleinu, and the Asara Haruge Malchut, which are typically recited, the Ten Martyrs, that is recited typically in Musaf, it sounds like that's also part of the Srichot service. It's not clear. It's either part of the Srichot service or the confessional service. But, so there are pieces that are still, there are remnants, shards that are left from the Srichot service. But I wanted to explain about the, this particular structure, and this is a very important point about Yom Kippur in general. What is precipitating, what is the Srichot business? So the Srichot, Hashem Hashem Kel Rachum Bechanun, they are found in the Torah in the story of the golden calf. The story of the golden calf is a story that we are constantly recalling in the service. You should remember Moshe, etc., who prayed to you when you gave him the 13 attributes of mercy, and that takes place after the golden calf. Now, the story of the golden calf is like this. At least the story as, as told in the book of Exodus is like this. In Deuteronomy, it has a different story. But the story of the golden calf in Exodus is the following. Moshe ascends the mountain to bring down the tablets and to get instructions about building the Mishkan. That's why he goes up the mountain. Israel has already heard the Ten Commandments. They've also heard from Moshe the additional commandments. It's called the Book of the Covenant, chapters 21, 22, 23. And Moshe comes down the mountain, he makes a sacrifice, a sacrifice. he throws the blood on the people, half the blood on the people, half on the altar. The people say, Naseh It's all chapter 24. And this is the, covenant, the blood of the covenant. So the giving of the Torah is a covenant. And the tablets are called Shnei Uchot the tablets of the covenant. And then Moshe goes back up the mountain to bring down these tablets. And the tablets are going to be housed inside this house that they're going to build in the center of the camp where God and the people will live together. That's this picture, the glorious picture of what's supposed to happen. So Moshe goes up the mountain. He's there for a long time. People are getting nervous down below. You know, he's not back on time or whatever. So they decide they're going to make a golden calf and they sort of coerce Aaron or they sort of, you know, threaten him or whatever. And Aaron builds for them a golden calf. And Moshe's on top of the mountain, and God says to Moshe, go down, your people have corrupted themselves. God says, you know something? They look like a pretty hopeless case, actually. Let me, let me destroy them, and I'll make you the nation. And Moshe refuses. Moshe says, that, that's, that's, that, that's not the plan, not interested. What about your promises? Remember your promises, right? How you can't do this. They're your people, after all. And he's still on the mountain. And God re- relented of the, of the evil that God had thought to do to God's people. It's chapter 32. That's what happens on top of the mountain. Then Moshe comes down the mountain. And when he comes down the mountain, his disciple is waiting for him at the foot of the mountain, Yoshua. So the whole time he's waiting. And they hear this sound from the camp. And Joshua says, sounds like it's a war. A war. And then someone, either Joshua self-corrects, or Moshe says, it's not a war. It's a cry I'm hearing. Joshua doesn't know what it is. He's not, he hasn't been in the camp. He's waiting like a very faithful <coughs> disciple. Moshe comes to the camp, and there are the people dancing around the golden calf, and Moshe breaks the tablets. That's the story. So, breaks the tablets, it means you can't build the Mishkan. Because the Mishkan, tablets are the work of God. So the, the Mishkan cannot be built 
God and the people cannot dwell together. And then that begins the process of reconciliation. What the story of the golden calf, this is actually a very important point about the Chumash in, in general, and specifically Yom Kippur. The story of the golden calf in the book of Exodus is not, the issue in the story is not whether Israel survives or does not survive. That's a non-issue. Because that has been determined already on top of the mountain. It said God relented of the evil God had thought to do to God's people, which was to destroy us. God decides, determines not to destroy us. That's not the question. The question is, in the story of the golden calf, what is going to be with his people in terms of what is their relationship going to be? In fact, God is explicit to Moshe after there's a civil war, and God says to Moshe, take the people to the land. I keep my promises. I'm going to drive out the inhabitants. I'm going to send an angel with you to chase out the, the people. It's a land of milk and honey. But I, I personally, says God, I'm not going with you. I can't, because if I go with you, we'll fight. If we fight, I'll, I'll destroy you. So, lo I can't go in your midst. So that's what God says. So when the people hear this news, they say they're very upset, and they do several things. The first is, they mourn. They take off their jewelry. And, Moshe, and God says to Moshe, listen, what, 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 what can I do, you know? Tell them to keep the jewelry off, and let me consider what to do. Because after all, I can't, go, I can't be, be amongst them. So it sounds like God wants to be amongst the people, but God says it's not possible. People are crying and mourning. And that begins in the Chumash, this process of reconciliation, which has several stages to it. If you recall the story, the first step is, after the people are mourning and crying and all that, says that Moshe um, took his own tent. Moshe Took his own tent, his own tent. And he put it outside the camp. And he called this tent the tent of meeting. Oomoed in the Chumash is a synonym for the Mishkan. So he takes his own tent and he calls it the Mishkan in chapter 33 of Exodus. And it says anybody who would seek God could go to the tent which was outside the camp. So the first, Hashem. So the first step is he brings God down into this world, but not inside the camp. He brings it inside, outside the camp, inside his own house, because God is not angry with Moshe. God loves Moshe, speaks to Moshe. So that's the first step. And then it's an opportunity to seek out God. And then it also says in the Chumash that for those people who wouldn't actually leave the camp, they would stand by their own tents, and they would look at Moshe walking into his tent, and they would bow down at, at, in their own spaces. And this is what the people would be doing. So they would either go there, take, make the journey. Even if they wouldn't go there, they would connect to it in some way. And they would bow down by their own houses without taking the journey. So that's part of the reconciliation. In other words, God is not amongst them yet. And the next step, God says to Moshe, listen, you haven't told me who's, who's going with me. You said the angel is going with them. Who's going with me? Who's going to accompany me? So God says, well, I'm, I'm going to accompany you. So Moshe says, well, if you're going to accompany me, that's very good because I go with them. So God says to Moshe, okay, I'll, I, will, I will do this as well. That is, I'll, I'll accompany them also. 
That's how Moshe accomplishes his mission, as he understands it, to bring God amongst the people. But how's it going to happen? That's the question. How would, how, how, how's that going to take? Because what God had said earlier still seems to hold true. How can they go amongst them? Right? How can they go amongst them? They're, they're stiff-necked people. If I, the, they go among, I go amongst them. It's chapter, that is in chapter 32. Um, I'm sorry, that's in, yeah, that's in chapter 33, beginning of 33. If I go amongst them for one moment, you can see for yourselves in the Chumash, I will destroy them. Fine. So now God says to Moshe, wait inside the cleft of the rock, Nikrat Hatsur, and I will pass by. And God passes by Moshe, and God calls out, or someone calls out, Hashem Hashem Kel Rachum V'chanun Erech Apayim V'Rav Chesed V'Emet. So God teaches Moshe the attributes of mercy. When Moshe hears these attributes of mercy, he hurries up and he bows down and says to God, Yehoch no Hashem Bekirbeinu, walk amongst us, Ki Amkshe Orefu, for it is, it is a stiff-necked people, to which God responds in the affirmative, Behold, Anochi Koreit Brit. So the question is, in the study of the Chumash, what does it mean, Kiyam Kshayorifu? Yehoch no Hashem Bekirbeinu, Kiyam Kshayorifu, because earlier God had said, I can't go amongst the people, Kiyam Kshayorifu. That's the reason God can't walk amongst us. Now Moshe turns to God and says, walk amongst us, ki am So some interpret ki am despite the fact that. Nonetheless, come with us anyway. With all the threats, it's still worth it. Even though ki sometimes means despite. Despite the fact. That's one way to read it. Or it's because. Or because. But the problem is, if it's because, how does that resolve the problem? So my suggestion made it many years ago, this suggestion, is that what Moshe is asking God to do, and this is the idea of the, of the temple, what, God, what Moshe says to God is, look, I understand you want to dwell amongst the people. You said earlier, what can I do? Moshe's the one, Moshe's the mediator here. God says, I'd like to go amongst them, but I can't figure out a way to do it. That's how the Chumash presents it. Says Moshe, I'll tell you a way to do it. Here's, here's, here's what you have to do. It is true. If you accompany the people in the fullness of God, of what God is, God's seal, we are told, is uh, truth. Chotamo emes, right? God's seal is truth. If, so if you come to us with the basic quality of truth, then we're all finished. Nobody can survive that. So what you have to do, actually, is engage a kind of self-restraint, kind of tzimtzum, to limit God's... To, you have to limit yourself. The God who will accompany us is fundamentally a God of mercies. Hashem Hashem Kerachum Vachanun Erech Apayim Vrav Chesed Vemet. And Emet in that context does not mean truth, by the way. Chesed Vemet in the book of Genesis and Exodus does not mean grace and truth. That's a mistake. Chesed Vemet means true grace. That's how it always figures in, in Genesis. Every single time it means the same thing. But Jacob says to, to his son Joseph, bury me in the land. It doesn't mean grace and kindness and truth. It means true kindness. What we call nowadays chesed shalemet. 
it's chesed shel emes because you don't expect to get paid back. The person you're doing the favor to, it's a it's a it's a kindness that transcends a particular moment. So that's what Moshe says to God. You have to come with us in the aspect of the forgiving God. The God who dwells amongst us will be the forgiving God. The Mishkan is the place where God is found, but which God? Not all of God's presence. The Mishkan is the place of the forgiving God. In fact, the Torah says elsewhere, calls the Mishkan the place where God's name is found. The name of God is there. The name, presumably, is yud heh vav Hashem. But Hashem, as spelled out by God, Hashem means so the Mishkan becomes, paradoxically, the vehicle for the, for, the, for the forgiveness. That is essentially the story of the golden calf. So I want to emphasize, first of all, the story of the golden calf is not about life and death survival. Now, that is told in the book of Exodus. The survival issue is taken care of before Moshe goes down the mountain. He prays on top of the mountain. Deuteronomy is different, but in, in Shemot, when he comes down and he sees the dancing and the golden calf and he breaks the tablets and all that, and then the question is, how do you bring the two sides together? That's the question. So the, if, we, if we take the Yom Kippur, Yom Kippur is more about reconciliation. It's about quality of life. It's not so much who, who lives and who dies. Maybe that's a Rosh Hashanah theme. First day of Rosh Hashanah is a day of strict judgment. But Yom Kippur is a different kind of a day. It's a day of mercies. Okay, it's mercies, but what is the relationship? There can be a hundred different kinds of relationships. So the golden calf, actually, is interesting in that, in that aspect. That's number one. That, that it's about the nature of the relationship. And number two, there's something else very interesting about the Mishkan. If this, if this, if, if this is true, what I said, I hope so. If it, I mean, if that's the pshat, that the Mishkan is the vehicle which allows forgiveness to take place. It's the place of, it's the place of God's mercies. Then what makes complete sense in terms of the Avodah is the following. On Yom Kippur, we reenact the Avodah. We actually reenact, it's a reenactment. We are entering into the, we are spectators at the, in, the, in the temple. We are seeing the high priest perform the service. We hear the high priest's confessions. Actually reenacting it. What does the high priest do on Yom Kippur? So the high priest on Yom Kippur, it's a very special service. It's the only time in the year where only the high priest can do part of the service. No one else can do this, just the Kohen Gadol. And the Kohen Gadol, essentially, there are several key components to the service of the Kohen Gadol on Yom Kippur. The highlight of it, I would say, is twofold. Number one, the entering into the Holy of Holies, which is done one time in the year, and the sprinkling of the blood on top of the ark, that's very special on Yom Kippur. He brings two different sacrifices and he sprinkles the blood on top of the ark. He brings his own sacrifice and he brings the sacrifice to, to the people. It's called the Soyer Lashem, the goat that is brought to God in the Holy of Holies. And the goat that is brought to God in the Holy of Holies has a twin because there were two goats. There's one goat that's brought in the innermost section of the temple, the Holy of Holies. And there's the goat that is sent off into the desert, called Soil Lazazel, the goat that's brought Lazazel. The Torah says that the goat that sent away Lazazel, sent off into the desert, in the mission, they throw the goat out of a cliff. 
But the Torah doesn't say that, but they send it away. And the Torah says that the high priest confesses the sins of Israel and places them, as it were, on top of the goat. And the goat carries away the sins. That's what the goat, the scapegoat. The scapegoat is carrying away the sins of Israel. What about the other sacrifice and sacrifices that the high priest brings on Yom Kippur? What is their function? So the Torah says, and we read this Yom Kippur morning, Right? The Kohen will atone for the holy places because of the sins of Israel. He'll atone for all the different spaces in the temple. The holy, the less holy, and the holy of holies. So the purpose of the this high service of the high priest on Yom Kippur is twofold service. One is to enable us to cast away our sins. That seems almost secondary. The primary purpose seems to be to purify the temple. Actually, Milgram, in his massive work on Vayikra, emphasizes this point. I think it's a simple shot of the Chumash. But his point is that the temple, as I said, is the, is the vehicle which allows Israel's sins to be forgiven. But the temple can only be the vehicle if the temple itself is not stained to a degree that it can't function. And what stains the temple are the sins that Israel commits inside the temple and outside the temple. The sins are actually defiling the temple. So every single year, the temple has to be cleaned up, has to be, one might say, reborn, as it were, purified, sanctified, and that's the purpose of Yom Kippur. The purpose of Yom Kippur is firstly to purify the temple, because the temple is, after all, the vehicle, right? It's the place where God's name is there. It's God's, it's God's forgiving presence, but it works through this mishkan. So that's one element. And the second element is just to cast away the sins, to send them off far away, and that's the second goat, and the goats are chosen by means of this, of this lottery. So these are the highlights. This is the highlight of, these, of this service on, the, uh, on Yom Kippur. And um, this ser- service is, is actually reenacted. But my point is that the <coughs> story of the golden calf, which lies behind the Slichot service, is uh, intimately connected to the story of the high priest that we reenact because it's all about essentially this relationship and what represents the relationship is the presence of this of this of God's forgiving of, of God of God's forgiveness, the <coughs> forgiving presence of the temple. So what the Slichot are about then is is the fact that we don't have his temple. We don't have God's forgiving presence and what the Slichot are about is trying to figure out a way to achieve forgiveness without the vehicle that typically affords us forgiveness. So it's something is replacing, has to replace the temple. That's why, by the way, you'll notice that if you look at the Slichot service, uh, there's a constant emphasis on the fact that the city of Jerusalem has been destroyed, uh, desolate, destroyed, etc. Now, some of those things are very difficult to say in today's world, because the city of Jerusalem is far from being destroyed. It's an amazingly uh, reborn city. There is no temple. So the point is that the idea of it, though, 
the idea of the Slichot, it goes back to Hashem Hashem Kerachem V'chalun in the narrative section of Sefer Shemot. So that's why, for example, in the Musaf of Yom Kippur, you find the Slichot right after the Avodah. Because in the Avodah, we have the temple is actually alive. When you enter into the, the service of Yom Kippur, and you reenact the service of Yom Kippur, you're actually inside the temple. This is actually a very important point, you know? This is what I think sort of modern orthodoxy, you know what I mean? They have no clue. They have no, no clue. In other words, there's no sense, actually, it's just an article written about this recently, there's no sense of the, of the, of, 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 of the myth. And the myth is very important. You, when you enter into the davening, whether you, the point is, when you pray, we're in our prayers every Shabbos, we're asking for the restoration of the sacrificial service. Now, I don't know how many people in this room actually want the sacrificial service to be restored. I don't, personally. Okay, I spoke for myself. Maybe you all yearning every day and praying that we have the resumption of, of sacrifices in the temple, but it doesn't matter. But that's not the point. The point is not whether you actually want the sacrifices to be back or not. The point is when you're davening Musaf, actually, you enter into a different world. And in that world, you're praying for the sacrifices to be, to be, to be, to be resumed. When you leave that world, then you ask yourself, how does that speak to me today? That's another story. But the idea of actually entering into another dimension it's like the Malava Malka. There's a Malava Malka, you know? Go to Malava Malka. Who, who, who are the heroes of the Malava Malka? There's David Amelech, Chai Vakayam, Eliyahu Hanavi. There's uh, Yaakov Avinu, Atira Avdi Yaakov, Yisrael Saba. They're, they're actually there. They're, 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 I remember my, one of my nephews, it's a Hasidish Ben to him. He went to Yeshiva at Adniel. His friends, remember years ago, there was a. Uh, attack, terrorist attack in the yeshiva. Two boys, actually, in the kitchen, were killed. They held the doors. And they prevented these murderers from getting into the, when they killed a million people. And they saved a lot of people, and they were, they were killed. They were good friends of my, my nephew, actually. So I mean, at his wedding, he gets up at the wedding, and his chassidish sides him. He's a pupil of Rabbi Fruman. I want to thank the, all those that are here today, my grandparents, this, the, the Kedoshim from, uh, from, uh, from uh, New Yale. He didn't mean some theoretical sense. He meant they're actually there. That's very powerful. I remember Kabach once saying this. The souls are here with us today. And for that moment, they actually are there. It's not, it's not a metaphor. It's not an allegory. It's enter, putting your head in a different place where they're actually there. And the point of the Musaf of Yom Kippur is you're actually in the temple. It's actually alive. And then suddenly it disappears. Avol. And that's, that precipitates the slichot. Now that is, in my view, a dimension of the religious experience that is so <coughs> missing. So missing from, from the rational, you know what I mean? But that's what, that makes, that, if, you, if you can enter into that world, you have a different experience. And then when you leave that world, you've got to figure out how that experience continues to speak to me. But that is on Yom Kippur, this idea of reenacting. It's not just saying words. You're actually reenacting it. You're actually falling down to the ground. I mean, it's because you're in that temple. 
And you're hearing the, the, the confessions. Okay, that's, that's one thing I want to... Yes? I have a question about the um, golden calf story. Please. Because I tell stories about my grandson. Yes. So I've reread this chapter. Oh, yes. And there's, right. and there's something I don't understand. That you said... Moses appeals to God, and he and God relents. So on line um, 14, it says, I'm reading this transcript. Go ahead, God yes, explained. go ahead. But then on line uh, 27, Moses says to the people, this is what God, Lord of Israel, says, let each man put on the sword, etc., right. etc. And then... He asks the Levites to kill people, and 3,000 are killed. Right. And then on line 35, God then struck the people with a plague. With a plague. That's right. So he relents from destroying them completely. Right. However, 3,000 people are killed. Well, the 3,000 is a civil war. The three, God doesn't kill the 3,000. God kills others. But God is not squeamish about killing people in the Bible, by the way. That's yeah. My point about relenting is destroying the people completely. God had said, forget them. I'll make you the nation and I'll destroy them and make you the nation. Says most, you can't do that. Says God, you're right, I'm not going to do that. Doesn't mean God's not going to punish the perpetrators of the golden calf. Doesn't mean there's a price to be paid. They have the word pakad that has a negative side to it as I discussed yesterday. But the point is but God won't utterly destroy them. The people live, right? The people live. The people are going to be punished. It's not clear when that happens. Is it the next day? Is it 10 years? On the day that I consider it, I remember it, I will, I will punish them. That's true. But the idea, but my point is, the survival of the Jewish people is not the question. The question is the quality of life. Now it's, by the way, just to make a point, I don't want to belabor this point, but the issue of Jewish survival in this country, okay? For years, the issue was survival. When they talked about Judaism, other Jews, now I understand after the Shoah why people would talk in those terms, but it was not a question typically about, let's say we're going to survive, but what is the nature of this survival? What, what is the quality of Jewish life? That wasn't the language that was being spoken. To me, that was a terrible mistake, actually, because it's not about we always have to, survival is always an issue. I mean, we know that better than anybody, what can happen. Here, Israel, whatever. But, okay, but, but let's say we are, let's, Naniach, that we do survive, what is the nature of this, of this, of this, of this community? What, what, what's it about? What's our relationship with the sacred, with each other? That, that's something which is, so the Chumash, that's the issue. In the Chumash, that's the, that's the, issue in Sefer Shemot. It's not about, well, the people of Israel will live. God says, they're going to survive. But in what form? Are they going to survive living together with me? So God said initially, no, they can't go with me. I'll send an angel. They should live and be well. They can have the land, milk and honey. But I'm not going to go with them. It means you can't have a temple. can't have my presence. And the people, the people don't want that. The people reject that. No, we want God amongst us. And then that's all the work that has to get done to allow that to happen. And the book ends with that. The book ends with the Mishkan being rebuilt. So it ends on a very glorious note that it's possible to build a space where God and the human being live together. The alternative, it's like the Garden of Eden, but in a different setting. It's the ending, the end of Exodus is really the end of the first two books of the Bible. First two books of the Torah. It's the replacement of the Garden of Eden, 
but all the work that what goes into it, the, the confessions and the and the repentance and the and the mourning and the crying and all that, and God makes concessions, and then we build the Mishka. Yes. I have a friend who says that uh, Jewish perpetuation is not a Jewish value. It's not a Jewish value, but it's it, but it's it's it's, it's, it's so necessary. But it's not sufficient. Let's put it that way. If we don't survive, we can, can't contribute much to. But it's not the ultimate issue in the Chumash, I think. The golden calf story, I believe, when you get out of Genesis, is the most important story in the Torah. Because it defines our connection to God in, in I would say, in, in real terms. The story of standing at Sinai three months after we were freed from slavery, it's not a real story because that's not who we are. We are people that make golden calves. And the question in the Chumash is, for those who make mistakes, how can we connect to God? And, this, and we get a second set of tablets. And the first tablets are broken. And then that is the, that's what actually is real. That's the, you know, according to our tradition, the second set of tablets were given on, uh, on uh, Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur is the day of receiving the Torah, the real Torah. The other Torah is a good start, but that's not the real Torah. The real Torah is given on the Day of Atonement, because that's understanding. That's people will by people by our, by our nature. That's who we are. We make mistakes, but everybody does. And the question is, what do you do about the mistakes? How do you move forward? So that's the. I, I just wanted to emphasize very strongly the great significance of the Golden Calf, which is constantly being referenced in the Yom Kippur service. And for those that because Kel Melech, before we say Hashem Hashem Kerachim V'Chanun. Right? As you taught the modest one, we're remembering the story of the golden cave. You told Moshe what to say, right? You taught us to say these midot. As you taught Moshe, right? Those are the verses in the golden calf, at the end of the golden calf story. So that's the, okay, so that's the first point I wanted to make about the, where we say these slichot. Or, or the remnant of the Srichot that some say, it's either after Yalav Yavo, that's in Mincha, that's in Shachrit, that's in the Iwa, and at nighttime we make up a Yalav Yavo, Yalav Tachnu Neinu, it's a made up Yalav Yavo, but in Musaf there's no Yalav Yavo. But in Musaf it comes right after we are, we are building, as we're building a temple, we're inside that temple, and then suddenly it's not there. Fine. So yes? According to this scenario, what would have been the purpose of the Mishkan, which was already being talked about and constructed before the sin of the calf? I mean, you're, are you saying it evolved from something that would have been have, had a different function? Well, I'm not sure it would have a different function. There is a dispute between Rashi and the Ramban, but I, let's take what you're saying, which I happen to agree with a thousand percent, and the Ramban does too, that the, 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 the goal of the Mishkan, for the Ramban, the way he understands the Chumash, uh, the goal is the Mishkan. That, 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 that's how the book of Exodus ends. It ends with the goal of the Chumash is that God and the human being can live together in the same space to construct a holy society. Because that's the Garden of Eden. God is walking in the garden. People are in the garden. But we fail to live in the garden. We, we fail to, we can't live in the Garden of Eden. And the reason we fail to live in the Garden of Eden, it's actually very interesting. And this, the rabbinic tradition, picks up in spades. It's in the Chumash, too. The problem with us in the Garden of Eden is that we failed to acknowledge our own humanity. That is to say, we failed to acknowledge our own mistakes. 
we, we were hiding from God and we eat of the fruit, okay, it's inevitable. And then God says, where are you? Ayeka, right? And I'm hiding. Why? You, why I, I heard your voice, I'm hiding. Because after all, we're, we're naked. How can we stand before God? Who told you you're naked? You didn't eat of that fruit, did you? And then that was his opportunity to say the right thing. The right thing would be, I certainly did, and there's no excuse. Had Adam said that, we'd all be in the Garden of Eden today. <laughs> but that's not what Adam says. Adam says, the woman that you put by my side, she made me do it. So in other words, whose fault is it? It's her fault. And frankly, God, I got a problem with you too. You put her by my side. You entrapped me. So what do you want from me? It's her fault and frankly yours. Woman, what did you do? Male seat. The snake, snake did it. Now the point is, there's always some truth in that. That's what's interesting. It's true that the snake has misled me, has coaxed me, misled me. But for the Chumash, that actually doesn't excuse it. It may mitigate, but doesn't excuse. So the, the, the ultimate sin of the Garden of Eden and what makes it impossible for God and the human to live together is the failure to actually confess. And the truth of the matter is, if you think about that, of course, it's so deeply tied into Yom Kippur. Because if the purpose of Yom Kippur is to reconstruct this temple, which we reenact, right? But, but what makes it possible for the... As, as you all said, because, okay, we sinned one time, we say we're sorry, we take off the jewelry. But let me ask you, you think it's going to happen again? Of course it's going to happen again, because that's who human beings are. So that's why the confession is so central on Yom Kippur. And not only is it central in general, but it's the central, one of the central pieces of the service of the high priest. There's where you have confession for Israel. In the service of the high priest, he puts his two hands on top of the scapegoat and he confesses his sins. And what's interesting is how the rabbis understood that. Because the rabbis understood, which is not in the text at all, but the rabbis read into the text, which is the Torah reading of Yom Kippur in the morning, that there's not only a confession on the scapegoat sacrifice, but the rabbis understood, which is not in the text, but it's their interpretation, that he confesses two different times on his own sacrifice. There are three confessions, because the Kohen has confesses twice on his own sacrifice. First he confesses his own sins. Then he confesses the sins of his family, not just, and, and, and all the priests. The first maybe includes his family, immediate family. But the second is the sins of all the Kohanim. He confesses those two on his own sacrifice. <laughs> and then in the third instance, which is in the text, he confesses the sin of all of Israel on the scapegoat sacrifice, and he sends the scapegoat sacrifice away. So you see the degree to which the rabbinic tradition understood that confession is actually necessary. And if you think about the book of Genesis, Sefer Breshit, I was just thinking yesterday, you know, I'm very interested in this topic, you know, repentance. Everybody's written about it. I'm, I'm wondering maybe I should write myself about repentance because I have many thoughts about it in terms of how it emerges from the different texts, especially the biblical texts, not only the biblical texts. And if you think about this, it's very interesting that in the book of Genesis, that first question that God, actually God asked the woman the question. The question God asked Adam is, you didn't eat of that fruit, did you? How do you know you're in, naked? Did you eat of that fruit? I told you not to do it. I commanded you not to do it. Then he has his so-called answer. The woman did it. 
And then God says to the woman, what have you done? Me'osit. God didn't mention the command because God, God never commanded the woman. He only commanded Adam. But what did you do? She knows it's forbidden. What did you do? The snake. And the point is, that question, what have you done? Me'osit. Me'osita. Is a question that runs through the whole book of Genesis. If you think about it, you have it several times in Genesis. You have it, for example, with both of the Abraham stories, maybe the Isaac story too, when they say their wife is this is their, is their sister. And the and um, Avimelech, for example, says to Abraham, "What did you do?" right? Masima Asito says, Chapter twenty. What did you do? Why did you lie to me? What did you do? And Abraham gives his answers, okay? I was afraid for my wife. She really is my sister. Well, we do this every place we go. It's always terutzim. And there's always some truth in the terutzim. But the fact, when you read that story, you say to yourself, he didn't answer it properly. Or, for example, Lavan, where Jacob runs away from Lavan, steals away by Ignov Yaakov at Lev Lavan Arami. He steals away in the night. And Rachel steals the trophim. Jacob doesn't know that. And Lovin catches up. Why did you do this? Why did you steal away? Why did you steal my gods? And Jacob says, Oh, I stole away because if I didn't steal away, I was afraid you'd never let me go. And as far as the other business with the, with the, uh, with the uh, idols, whoever took them should drop dead. Now, the point is, there's a lot of truth in what Jacob says. But the answer is unsatisfactory on several levels. First of all, he did steal away from Lavan. He does act in Lavan in a surreptitious way. We could, we, could, we, we could defend him. If we were his lawyers, we could defend him. And what do you mean whoever took it should die? That's not the right thing to say. Maybe the right thing to say is whoever took it should die, and I also am responsible. Because he, he's the head of the family. He doesn't take any responsibility. So the answer is not... You have this question that appears five or six times in Genesis, and it's always some, a good, the answer is not totally wrong. It's not black and white. But it's never totally right either. Until you come to the one story where he gives the right answer. Talking about confession. Where is the right answer? Judah is the right answer, and Judah is very interesting. So in Genesis, it's when the brothers, it's very parallel to the story of Jacob leaving the house of love, and the brothers leave, uh, from Joseph, and Joseph has placed <coughs> this magical goblet in the sack of Benjamin. The brothers don't know this. So they're traveling along, and Joseph's uh, emissary comes. So what did you do? What kind of people are you? We were so good to you, and what are you, what are you stealing? And the brothers say, what do you mean? Whoever took it should die. And we'll also be slaves. We'll also be slaves. And they search, and lo and behold, they find it in Benjamin's sack. And they come back and they come back to Joseph. What did, says Joseph, what have you done? What have you done? Says Judah. Judah says, I have, we have nothing to say. There's no way to justify it. God has found out our sin. That's one of the great turning points. Now, what is, why is that great, actually? Because I presume that Judah knows, because they also find money in their own. They know, actually, that they never stole any money. They themselves because they, when they left the first time, they find money in their own sacks. And they know that they didn't steal it. Somebody put it there. So why didn't he say, you set us up? I'll tell you why. And that's the point. Because, actually, 
and this is my point. He, 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 he probably suspects he did set him up. But Judah's making a different point, which is a very profound point in the story. It may be true that we're set up about this. We're innocent of this sin. But we have a different sin. One that you're not accusing us of, but one that hovers over the entire story. Why is this happening to us? As the brothers themselves understand, why is this happening to us? It must be because of the story of Joseph. When he cried out for help, we weren't there for him. And God has found that as sin, and we're being punished for that. So the confession of Judah, what makes it a very powerful confession is that actually he's, it is a true confession, but it's a confession to a different sin. And that's the point. It's not that, as far as what he thinks Joseph is saying, that's not true. You know, some people are that way, but you still have this person. Every time she would say something to me, she would complain about, so-and-so did this. And 99% of the time, it was actually not true. But was, she was always right about the person. She was never right about what the, what the, she was always wrong about, the, but she had intuition, which was basically correct. Something's not right here. What's not right? Something, oh, did that. No, he never did that. He never actually did that. So, but it was something else, actually. She couldn't formulate what it was, but she felt it. That's, I give that as an, it's not an exact analogy, but the point is, the confession of Judah is a great confession because it's an understanding of responsibility. It goes hand in hand with, I take responsibility. I, I stand in place of the other. The two things go together. It's the story of Judah and Tamar. It's a confession on one hand and responsibility on the other. Those go together. So of course, he knows or he strongly suspects that Benjamin didn't steal the goblet because he knows he didn't steal the money. He does make, right? But it doesn't matter. The point is, but God is punishing us. That's not about Benjamin. And therefore he says, we're all responsible. And not only that, if you want to single out one person who's responsible, it's got to be me. Because I'm the one who promised my father that I would take responsibility. And frank, the fact of the matter is, I'm the one in a sense responsible for the sale of Joseph in the first place. Because it was Judah who says, let's sell him. Because what, what profit is there? What, what financial benefit could we get if we just kill him? Let's sell him. So Judah stands and takes responsibility. And that's where you have in the book of Genesis, actually, the idea of taking responsibility. And it's Judah who is going to become, the, he becomes the leader. He's actually the leader of the, of the, of the people. Later, the story gets uh, replayed in the person of David, who also takes responsibility. So the idea of responsibility, of vidui, something that's very central to the service of the high priest in the Chumash, but the rabbis come and expand it because it's not just a vidui on that one sacrifice. There are three confessions on Yom Kippur in the service of the, uh, of the high priest. Okay, How, what time is it now? I want to get to a... I just want to quick question. Yeah, How much well, before this one's... Okay, go ahead, yeah. How much liberty do you have to interpret the story when the literal meaning means one thing and the interpretation means something else? I'm giving one example is Ishmael, the uh, expulsion of Ishmael. Now, yes. What about him? Some of the commentaries say he was evil. Okay, Ishmael is evil, and uh, you know we have to shelter uh, Isaac from Ishmael. Uh, I think even Ezra says no. That, uh, he was a child, and you can't expect him. And I, I, I read the uh, 
Tsenarena yesterday, and they're saying that uh, Ishmael was wild, was a wild boy, and uh, that uh, the reason that uh, Abraham put Ishmael on the back of uh, Hagar was that uh, he was sick, that, that Sarah had given him the uh, evil eye and he became sick and therefore he couldn't walk. It doesn't say that Ishmael is on the back of, of Hagar. No, no. Uh, he uh, put the water on the back. He walked uh, together. Well, there's a question whether Ishmael was actually put on the back of... Uh, it doesn't say it exactly... It doesn't sound that way to me. Well, wait, 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 you're asking me a question. Yes. How, why should we, should we really look at the story, which I think is actually sympathetic to Hagar and Ishmael. Many interpretations are very unsympathetic, but I find that the story itself... Well, it's nothing to do with that topic, but you're asking, a, you're asking a general question about interpreting a text. I think the first step in interpreting a text is trying to figure out, without apologetics, what, to the best of our ability, what the text is actually saying. The text in Genesis in general makes it so interesting. They're incredibly complex. No, he's not evil in the sense, as far as I can see it, he, he's, he's, he mocks his brother and he thinks that his, perhaps his own place is still as the primary child. That's probably true. It's so true that Sarah thinks that we have to get rid of him together with his mother, whom, he, whom she dislikes because the mother taunted Sarah. That is true. So I think it's very complicated. I think the story of Yishmael can be seen as, it's related to Rosh Hashanah, so I'll just take one minute to answer, and that is, my take on Yishmael's story is that it's kind of tragedy, actually. Now, I think that we have to remember that the expulsion of Yishmael, and this is a very important point, is not something Abraham wants to do. In fact, he's not going to do it. It says, The matter was evil in Abraham's eyes on account of his son, and his son means Yishmael. The Torah could have said on account of Yishmael. It says on account of his son, which means that for Abraham, it sounds like his primary son is still Yishmael. It's his firstborn son. He prayed for Yishmael. By Yerah, means he's not going to do it. And God stepped in. It's God who determined Yishmael to be sent away. God says, don't worry about him. He's going to be okay. He'll be very successful. Twelve tribes, very successful. But the covenant's got to be with Isaac. So it's not that Abraham, somehow, nor is it the case, as some have argued, in my view, erroneously, that he gives them a meager amount of supplies, and when they run out of water, the text blames Abraham. The text does not blame Abraham. The text, if anything, blames Hagar for losing her way, because losing your way in Genesis doesn't mean you have a bad sense of direction. She's lost her way, but it's a story, I think, that's a tragedy in the sense, not that it's wrong to kick Ishmael out, because God said to do it, so it's got to be right. It's very sad that it comes to that point. It comes to that point for any number of reasons, because of Abraham's behavior, he doesn't take responsibility, because of the way Sarah's mistreating of Hagar, because of Hagar's mocking of Sarah, because of Yishmael's taunting of Isaac, so that it's a story with a whole history to it. But the question is, leaving the history out of it, right now, what is the right thing to do? And I think that's a very important point in the Chumash, and it's a very important point in life, you know what I mean? Because sometimes people get so caught up with how did this happen in the first place, whose fault was it, and they lose sight of the fact that right now, in the here and now, you have to take action in a certain way that's right for now. 
whosever fault it was. You know, I was just on a mission recently to Israel, and this is exactly the question. Whose fault was it? 48, this, that, what happened? It doesn't actually matter, in my view. What matters is, right now, given the situation, what is the right course of action? To start screaming at each other whose fault it was, it doesn't matter whose fault it was. It's an interesting question, but it doesn't affect the reality. The reality is Yishmael's got to go. God said that, not Abraham. Abraham's never going to do it. God says that. So, no, Yishmael is not a horrible person in the Chumash. He does misbehave, like his mother. Uh, he's, the fault can be blamed laid at everybody's door, starting with Abraham, I think, is the chief culprit here. But the point is, Sarah too, Sarah afflicted her, it said. Anyway, you shouldn't afflict the other because you were afflicted. But the fact of the matter is, I think that's a, uh, in the Chumash, it's a sad situation, but Abraham does the right thing because God tells him to do it. I also will say one other point, and I want to get on to the second piece of this uh, about the confession. I want to say something about the confession, which is central to Yom Kippur. Many years ago, I was invited to a conference out in Denver, and some guy got up, talked about Hagar. He had this whole business about how he really didn't do anything wrong at all, and this and that. He was just kidding around. And it became very clear to me that he felt that somehow, if we had this interpretation of the Chumash, the entire Arab-Israeli conflict is going to be solved. So I found that troubling on two levels. First of all, I, and I was in a very strange situation because I had spoken just before him in the same room and I couldn't get out of it. I was sitting there and then one, I was in a presenter. I didn't want to attack him because, first of all, he had done me a favor. Second of all, it's not nice to attack another speaker. It was like one of these remote things where any sort of anything goes, you know what I mean? So, but fortunately, there was a guy in the room, a different person, who, one of my Hasidim actually who spoke up, and he, he says, this is not, not what it says, you know? But the idea that somehow if you had a better shot in the Chumash, you're going to solve all the problems is so removed from any kind of reality. Problems that are not solved by a shot in the Chumash. You know? So the point is, struck me as very odd. But that was the situation. But anyway, that's the story. But the larger point is, no, we've got to figure out what it, the first step is, what does it actually seem to say? Without apology. <laughs> to, the, to the extent that we can free ourselves from our own prejudices which is not simple, because we are all living in a certain place and time. We're all influenced unconsciously by many things. We all would like to read it a certain way, to the extent possible. I think the job of studying Torah, to first, what it says, then you figure out how to respond to it. Okay, many things are very troublesome, but what does it actually say? Okay, let's just leave Can that. I just for, yeah. One last what, no, yeah, very no, quickly, because we're running out of time. Hek, what? It's a fact that means to play. No, Mitzchik does not mean to play. Mitzchik is that's a mistake. Mitzchik is a negative word. Let's start with that. That's for sure. That's how it functions in the Bible. You don't get the truth by looking at a dictionary. You see how it functions in the biblical text. Mitzchik is a negative. Period. End of report. For sure. The golden calf. By Yakuma L'sachik in the golden calf. Were they playing marbles over there? No. L'sachik is negative. Whether it means prom- promiscuity, then it's mistranslated. Okay, I'm not responsible for that. But the word mitzachek is a negative word. Without interpretation. it's interpretation, but it's an incorrect one. Mitzachek is certainly a negative. Let me get to the confessions. Please. Okay, so the confessions are like this. There are two kinds. Of, typically, on the Ashkenazic rite, maybe the Sephardim have different confessions. I wouldn't. 
I would guess they have some very beautiful confessions. They have the great poets. So, it's, it's, so there are two confessions that we have. And one is the Yashamna, which is very called the short confession. And the other is the Alchet, which is much longer. And the difference between them is that the Alchet, in general, tends to be more specific. It's much longer. It's a double. It's two alphabets. But it also tends sometimes to be very specific about what I did wrong, very specific things. The Yoshamnu, for the most part, is not specific. Yoshamnu, Boganu, Gazanu, Dibarnu, it's more general statements. So there are two kinds of confessions on Yom Kippur. There's one confession which is about, we're thinking about our own, everybody has their own situation, things that we did over the past year or so, and there are very particular moments, things we remember we said or did, that we regret, we wish we hadn't done them, and those are particular things. So one kind of confession is, you know, I did this, I remember I said this, I did this, bad mistake, sorry, I did it, whatever. And then there is another confession, which is not about, or another called confession, another act of repentance, which is not so much about a particular, but it's more about overall, where, where am I t- today in this world, and where would I like to be? And that's as we say in the davening and the chumash, in the Torah reading of Yom Kippur, l'fnei Hashem titaru, to be purified before God. Purity is not about a particular thing. Purity means, right, you purify yourself. It means you, you engage in some ritual act. It could be a mikvah, it could be something else. But you actually want to see yourself as a different person. You want to see yourself as a reborn person. You want to see yourself as a different person. And that's not about a particular thing that you do. That's more about looking in, in general of where I am in the world today, what I'm doing, etc., and then thinking about where I'd like to see myself over the next period of time. So those are two kinds of confessions. And we are saying both throughout Yom Kippur. All of Yom Kippur we have both of these confessions, both in the silent prayer, and we also have the confession when the Chazan repeats the Shemona Esri. The difference between them is interesting, by the way, as I start out, when do, when do you say the confessions? Where in the service do you say confessions? So the confessions in the private Shmona Esrei are recited after you in the Amida, but before you step back. You finish all the blessings, and then you start with the additional things, including the confessions. But when the Chazan repeats the Shmona Esrei in the Ashkenazic rite, this may be true in the Sephardic rite as well. The confessions are recited inside the, inside the, inside the fourth blessing. They're recited for the Ashkenazim right after the Slichot. So in Musaf you have Avoda, Slichot for those who say them, Vidui. That's the order. The order is always the Slichot before the Vidui. And it's recited inside the Shemot, inside the Chazar Sashats. Now, the reason for that is, uh, is very simple, actually. Rabbi Soloveitchik made this point many times, and it's uh, obvious. And that is that for the individual person, the Shemona Esrei does not end with the blessings. The Shemona Esrei ends when you step back. For example, let's say you're praying on uh, a holiday, and you're supposed to say, Yahweh V'yavo, say it's Pesach, and you forgot to say it. Cholomoy <coughs> Pesach. Start it over. If, so it depends. If you step back, you, start, you say it over again. But let's say you said all the blessings, 
but you didn't step back yet. Then the halacha is, you don't have to start over. You go back to say, and you can say it from there. Because as long as you haven't stepped back, you are standing before God. That's not true of the chazan. The chazan essentially, our appointee, the chazan's job ends with the, with the blessings. There's no thing of, nothing of adding it. Because after you have the blessings, you have your personal prayers. But the chazan doesn't have personal prayers. There's no right for the chazan to have personal prayers. He's not a personal prayer. In his private prayer, he can have personal prayers. But when he repeats the Shemona Esri, he's praying for the community. So therefore, the vidui that we say, we say it after the blessings before we step back. But the chazan doesn't have that luxury. The chazan can't do that. So the vidui of the chazan is inside the Shemona Esri. Okay, that's the vidui of the nighttime and the morning prayer and musaf and mincha. And now you come to the last prayer of Yom Kippur, which is Ne'ila. So what is the practice in the ego with the vidui? Do you know? We only say the Hashem. Okay, so this is a very important point. Okay. Let me say that. If I had a shul, I mean, I don't, I'm not going to have one, but if I did have one, I sometimes wonder whether... I would get up every year before Rosh Hashem Kippur and just explain the davening. Just the most basics about the davening. Because it's crazy. Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, I would say, it is very difficult to understand the structure of the davening. It's very complicated. It's very long. All kinds of insertions. What is the critical piece? So the critical piece for Ne'ila, the main piece of Ne'ila, is the vidui of Ne'ila. But the vidui of Ne'ila is not, we don't say al-chait altogether. We do say al-shamnu, but we say Hashem knew all of the prayers. That's not the main heart and soul of Ne'ila. The heart and soul of Ne'ila, I made a photo set over here, is the paragraph that begins, let's see, where is it? I hope it's here. Where is this thing? Let's see. Yes. 752. 752. Hashem on top of the page. You see the paragraph, mm-hmm. and it's followed by the paragraph, mm-hmm. is called the Vidui of Ne'ila. It is the central prayer of Ne'ila. The central prayer. It's also in the center of the page. is the central prayer of Ne'ila. It's called the confession of Ne'ila. That's a very important point. That's what the deal is about. So Atonotein Yadu Aposhim is a confession. But it's completely different from all of the other confessions. It's, it's interesting that in this particular confession, Atonotein Yadu Aposhim Viminchop Shutol Kabel Shavim, right? Batuamdeinu Hashem Elokeinu Ritzvadot Lifonecha. You have taught us to say Vidui. It says it explicitly. You have taught us to say vidui. Here, actually, it says, you teach us that we're about to say the vidui that you have taught us. But what is this vidui? It's very strange. In order that we stop, You have taught us to say vidui in order that we stop. Here they translate we withdraw our hands from oppression. Now, Oshek actually 
can mean oppression. That is true. But the word oshek, lo tashoket reacha velo tigzo, is understood by the Talmud not to mean so much oppression, but to mean theft. We stop the theft of our hands. Oshek in the Gemara is actually theft. And the point of it is, it's the only thing that's actually sing- singled out over here. oshek I wanted to make two points about this confession, about what I think it's actually about, and why is the this is the great concluding prayer of the of the of the Ne'ilah service. In fact, the ends, the end of the paragraph of this confession, Ma'anu Mechayenu, Mechastenu, Matsitkotenu, Mayeshuatenu, Makochenu, Makvuatenu, Manomalifanecho Ashemu Kenu Vokea Votenu, Hawukoha Giburin Kayain Lifanecho, Anshe Ashem Kuloa Yu, Chachamim Kivri Madan, Nabonim Kivri Askel. That entire section, who are we, what do we know, what is our righteousness, is something that appears in many of the Siddur that's recited every single morning. So they, take, they took pieces, the Siddur took pieces of the highlights of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, such as Elena Lushabeach, and they were so moved by this that they included it in the daily ritual in one form or another. It is continued, by the way, I taught with a line, with big print, I taught with Nevertheless, you have set the human being apart from the beginning and considered the human worthy to stand before you. And this is the confession of, of so let me say a couple of things about this confession, which is the heart and soul of the ego service. First of all, in order that we stop the theft of our hands, can be understood, number one, as related to something that is recited just before Ne'ilah. Just before Ne'ilah, of course, we dive in Mincha. But, but one of the special features of the Yom Kippur service is that the Haftorah for Mincha is the book of Jonah. We actually read the book of Jonah towards the very end of Yom Kippur. And the book of Jonah talks about repentance. It's repentance, not of the Jewish people. It's repentance of the city of Nineveh. Nineveh is Babel, the evil empire. It's the repentance of the evil empire. And the king of Nineveh actually instructs everybody to repent, right? Perhaps God will see our actions, he says. And we, everybody should rid themselves of the theft or the wickedness that is in their hands. So the repentance of the book of Jonah is to get rid of Hamas, Asher B'Kapehem, and the repentance of the Yodenu, <coughs> and one can only wonder whether those two are actually connected. And the point of it, actually, is this. Taking that which does not belong to us is the primal sin of the Bible. It's the story of the Garden of Eden. The story of the Garden of Eden, which is the beginning of, uh, of, of humanity, there were two problems in the Garden of Eden. The second one I discussed already, the failure to come to terms with the fact that we make mistakes and we tend to blame other people for our problems. That's the second piece of it. That's the great sin, actually. But there's also a prior sin, which is taking of that which is forbidden, the forbidden fruit. And the point of it is, if you think about it more broadly, we're in this world, presumably we have a purpose in this world, and we want to use everything that's around us in the most, uh, in the most beneficial way. 
So Roman Nechda Mayoshek Yodenu, we sometimes we get involved with all kinds of things that lead us down very negative paths. And then the, those very things themselves, actually, <coughs> one might say in looking at it, it's a it's a it's a misuse of the world that God has given us. If we we're using this world and uh, taking and moving down uh, in directions that are uh, really contradictory to what we should be doing, one might say that in that case, actually, that is the ultimate sin. The sin is, it's not about the technical, I, I stole something. It's in the broader sense, the assumption behind the iwa is, it's, a, it's actually a reflection upon what it means to be a, 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 a human being. Vidui, not from the sense of to confess, but sort of modi manach it's sort of to, uh, to uh, acknowledge, I would say. It's an acknowledgement, it's a description in this prayer of who is the human being. And it picks up on what I mentioned before. The first part of it is the human being is, is sinful. That's the nature of the human being. Nonetheless, we are calling the book of Jonah, that's, that's, that, that's what God has created. That's the way God created humanity. That is the nature of the human condition. God does not expect perfection but God hopes for improvement. So that's the first piece of it. And the second piece of it, and it ends with this rather negative description of the human. What do we know anyway? We, we're here, we're fleeting souls, we don't have much knowledge, right? The difference between the human and the animal is naught. It is all vanity. And then the next paragraph, but you have set the human aside from the beginning. And you recognize the human can stand before you. They did Amida which is our service. The service is called Amida. We stand before God. One that I can't say is equals, but we stand before God in a posture of, of, of great, of, of dignity, the dignified human being. And there's no logical reason for it, because what, how, how do we help God in any way? Nonetheless, that is how you see us and how we see ourselves. And you've given us this opportunity. It's repeated in the second paragraph. So it ties it in with doing God's will. God's will for me. Again, the question is, how do you know what God's will is for me? How do I know? But, but that's a good question. But nonetheless, that's the confession. The confession, I think, in the Iwat, the end of Yom Kippur is, so we look at ourselves and we say, what am I doing in this world? What am I... What are my possibilities? What are my gifts? What are my strengths? What am I actually doing? How am I using everything around me in the most blessed way or not? And that's the confession. It's not about particulars at all. There's no particulars here in this whatsoever, actually. There's one. Otherwise, the confession contains no specifics at all. So after Yom Kippur is coming to it, this is the concluding prayer of Yom Kippur, actually, this Vidui. The conclusion of Yom Kippur, the great confession of Neila, is a, I'd say, kind of meditation on what it means to be a person, what it means to be a human being, with all the limitations that we all have, and then the opportunities and the possibilities and the recognition that God has given us from the very beginning. That's the Confession of Nigo. So this is the confessions that we have throughout all of Yom Kippur. Yes, sorry, what do you want to say? When it says that um, <coughs> is, do you think it's 
referring to the Pasukim B'chukotai, Vizvadu is Abonam, or it's something else, something broader than that? It may be referring to that specific verse, but I think the way this particular... There are different viduyim. It is important to think about the details. It's important to correct the... Because the truth of the matter is, realistically speaking, you know, we're not going to correct all our mistakes. It would be a good thing if after Yom Kippur we corrected one mistake, I think, and determined we're going to change this one thing. Sometimes one thing leads to the other. So I, I think it probably is... Uh, I don't know if the specific pasuk is the pasuk in uh, in in Bechukosa. That's certainly possible. That's a possibility. Maybe it's an interpretation of Lufnei Hashem Titaru. That's also possible. What does it mean to? <coughs> I don't know. I but the way it plays it out over here. To when we sing to God that you taught us how to confess. Right. Where, where did God teach us how to confess? I'm not sure if it taught us how to confess. Or to taught confess, us to, to con- confess. I think it's to confess. You have instructed us to confess. Mm-hmm. It appears elsewhere also in, in Bamidbar chapter 5, Visvaduas Avonam, the Parsha of Yezalagir, chapter 5 of Bamidbar. It appears in more than one place. But I think this specific. Let me just conclude with one thought about Yom Kippur, which is uh, just a final thought about Yom Kippur. Um, and that is so we touched upon Slichot, we touched upon Vidu, we touched upon the Avoda. Those are the three main components. I did want to make one last comment about, uh, about the blessing of Yom Kippur. The, the actual blessing at the end. So the blessing, I don't think it's, don't have it in this text, but the blessing is, at the end of the blessings, I'll just read it to you from the Master. It's a very strange blessing, actually. The blessing is, let's say the end of the, end of the just prior to the, the way the blessing is, is found. Let's see, let's go to the Ewa, for example. They're actually all the same. Um, yes. So we have it here. We have it here? What page is that? 754. 754? Okay. So, right. So just before the actual bracha, Melech V'soleach, Ki ata sachan l'Yisrael, u'machalon l'shivtei yishurun b'chodar v'adar, mi baladech ha'in lono melech b'chel v'soleach el ha'ata. We ask God to sanctify us, Tarli Beinu, the standard text that we have on Shabbos, the Yantav and Shabbos. And then it's very strange. For you, for you are the one who forgives Israel. And you forgive the tribes of Israel in every generation. Why do we mention Shiftei Yishurun? We have no other place, by the way. When Yom Kip, we talk about God forgiving Israel. And you atone for the sins of Shivtei Yishurun. Yishurun is Israel, the tribes. Blessed are you, O God, who, who forgives our sins and the sins of, of all of the house of Israel. Always wondered about this. Why do we mention Shivtei Yishurun? Now, I want to say one thing. If you take this too seriously, it's a drush. Okay, I'll give a little drush. I was wondering about this business of machalon l'shifte yeshurun b'chol davadar. I was wondering, the blessing, I tell you, the blessing of Yom Kippur, actually, and constantly referring to God as king, not just Rosh Hashanah, melech mochel v'soleach, or in the Srichot, kel melech yoshev al-kisei rachamim. The God on Yom Kippur is also a king. But this, this, the, the, the throne of God on Yom Kippur is the throne of mercy. 
but God is still a king. So I was wondering whether the text of Bachlon Lashifte Yeshua and Bechol Dar Vadar isn't recalling a verse in the in the in the, in the Bible. Not Vayishvayishur and Vayevad. I have a different thought in mind. Vayibishur and Melech. Pitasef Rashayam Yachad Shivte Yisrael. That actually, Vayibishur, it's one of the verses we say on Rosh Hashanah in the, in the Malchiel section. It's one of the three verses in the Torah that speaks of God as king. Vayibishur and Melech. When the, the book of Deuteronomy calls Israel Yeshurun for the word Yashar, that there was in Yeshurun a king. When all of the tribes came together, right? Pitasef Roshayam, Yachai, when all the tribes of Israel have come together. And it strikes me that actually this phraseology, which is very striking when you think of it in the davening, there's no other place in the davening we talk about Shifte Yeshurun, just on Yom Kippur. And I'm wondering actually whether there's not another message over here about Yom Kippur, which is, you know, the Gemara says that Yom Kippur is a great. The two days on the calendar that are days of great rejoicing. One is Tuba'av. Many good things happen in Tuba'av. It's a day where marriages take place, etc. And the other very happy day is Yom Kippur. Kamara says Yom Kippur, of course, is a happy day. What's Tuba'av? Yom Kippur is a day of atonement. But it's also interesting that Yom Kippur is seen by our tradition not just as a day of atonement, it's a day of marriages also, Shiduchim. Yom Kippur and Tubav, when they found time on Yom Kippur to do this, I have absolutely no idea. But as service, we had no breaks, but who knows? But the point is, there's something about Yom Kippur, actually, <coughs> which brings people together. There's something about the day of, it's a day of forgiveness. If you want to create a, a real community of people that are different, and people are different, each tribe is different, each tribe has its own blessings, each tribe has its own, its own its own sense of self, its own identity. There's 12 different tribes in Israel, each with a different identity. And the question is, can people with different identities and different outlooks on life, can they actually come together and, and live together? And the key to this, one of the keys certainly, is the idea of Yom Kippur. It's a day of forgiveness. It's a day of kindness. It's a day of compassion. It's a day of shiduchim, actually. So and Melech, when God is truly the king, and the king of Yom Kippur is the king of the king of mercies, then and Melech, when everybody comes together, even different people come together, Yachad Shiftei Israel, then the different tribes can actually that's what the Gemara had in mind about Yom Kippur and Tubav. These are happy days on the calendar. These are days when we put aside our differences. We respect the differences and they're very important, but we find a way to be together. So I wish for all of us we find a way to live with the other in harmony and peace, to learn from the other, learn from each other. should be a blessed day. It's a great opportunity on Yom Kippur. It's a very special day. Amen.